0: Welcome to Investments Unplugged. Before we get started, this commentary is for general information purposes only, and clients should seek professional advice for their particular situation. Thank you, and listen on. Uh, I want to make it also somewhat realistic here. There have been a number of recent articles proclaiming the death of the 6040 portfolio. And typically the reason is due to a lower for longer interest rate environment. I find this amusing. I've been in this business over 25 years and it seems that the one constant has been this claim that the 60/40 portfolio is dead. Well, is it? To paraphrase Mark Twain, the rumors of its death have been greatly exaggerated. In this episode I sit down with my friends and colleagues Jamie Robertson, head of asset allocation for Manulife Investment Management, and Alex Richard. Portfolio Manager with the Asset Allocation Team to discuss their views on the current environment and asset allocation in general. Listen on. This is Investments on Flight. Thank you for joining us on investments unplugged i'm your host philip peterson chief investment strategist with manulife investment management based out of my home these days and joining me today are my colleagues on our asset allocation team jamie robertson senior managing director and head of canadian asset allocation and his colleague alex richard managing director and portfolio manager with the asset allocation team jamie and alex thank you for joining
1: thanks for having us phil always a pleasure absolutely great to be back
0: And it's great to chat with you and see you. It's been a long, long time. Uh, It feels that way anyway. You know what, let's just dive right into it, right? In terms of how this rally has surprised and perhaps in some ways how it hasn't. Jamie, why don't we start with you?
2: Well, I mean, I've only been doing this for for sort of 38 years, as you know. Um, So not a day goes by that something actually doesn't surprise me. What didn't surprise me really was the rally. I mean, there was two things that were going on under the surface. You know, when you have a bear market like we saw in 08 or 09, and and again here in 2020, you know, the purpose of a bear market is for prices to get so low as to attract long-term participants uh, to the marketplace or or participants who have an extraordinarily long time horizon. You want to get those people involved in the market. Um, You know, those are value-seeking investors and, and that's who you need to enter the market. Um, and in, the, in this case, the, the Fed indicated they were going to buy anything that was 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 not nailed down. And when the Fed comes in and starts buying, like they did in in 09 and like they did this time, um, you know, the Fed is one of those long-term investors. But there was another group of participants, you know, who were buying towards the bottom as well. And that group would have included teams like ourselves, you know, people who are strategic asset allocators pension plans, sovereign wealth funds and endowments. And really what we were responding to was, was the extreme moves that occurred in the market. And what was happening was our portfolios were getting out of line with with what the the longer term weightings that we wanted to. So we were coming in and and buying um, equities on on that weakness, and we were a substantial buyer of equities, particularly in that third week and fourth week of, of March. And we were doing that from a rebalancing standpoint. So when we saw that, um, you know, we could see that that's how we were behaving. And we knew that there were a lot of other market participants who were, who were out there behaving the same. So we definitely could, could view from what we were doing as a good indication that prices were getting sufficiently low so as to attract those longer term buyers. What does surprise me is where we are today with nary a look back. Um, you know, members of our team had, had very fulsome debates, you know, about the two forces that were, were tugging at the market, really from, from the market bottom. And the first, the, the first cohort was, was that the fundamentals, you know, had gotten so weak in the short term that it was inconceivable that there wasn't going to be longer term damage to the economy, to the employment picture, um, you know, and to, and to corporate balance sheets. We understood that the Fed entering the market was solving the liquidity problem, but not the, not the, not the solvency problem. And there's still significant you know, uncertainty around the employment outlook and the underpinnings of the economy. So that was one cohort. But the other cohort, who obviously turned out to be more prescient, was saying, you know, what you're basically doing is don't fight the Fed. And I've been in the markets a long time, and generally speaking, that's been an adage that has helped you time and time again. Um, And that kind of evolved from don't fight the Fed to basically buy what the Fed Fed is buying. And the Fed came out and said that they were going to buy risk assets. And that's exactly what they did. And that was exactly the signal that that, that they were giving to to market participants. You have to remember that over basically a, a, a three or four week period, the Fed injected multiples of the liquidity that injected in, in, during the period of 2000, 2008 and 09, and at that time it took you know three, four, five quarters for them to do it. So there was a, a veritable tsunami of liquidity hitting the market, um, and this is what was going. To, this is what produced the the, uh, the surge in the market. But the extent of that has been, from my perspective, you know, quite astounding. You know, from the from the intraday low on March 23rd, as we speak here on September 2nd, you know, the S&P is up 62%. So let me say that again. Since March 23rd, that's 24 weeks ago, the market's up 61%. That's 2.5% per week. And with very, very few exceptions, it has been an incredibly smooth ride. We've only had four weeks where the market had a, a weekly close that was down more than 2%. And three of those were virtually two percent, so sort of, you know, sort of noise. And only one pullback that we see that, that was sort of four and a half percent in mid June. We have been up for ten consecutive weeks. So, was I surprised that we were going to get a rally? No, but could I have imagined that we'd be at all time highs with with unemployment rate at ten percent at, at, at Labor Day? I would say I would say no. I'm I'm very surprised at that.
0: Coming into this. You get a bear market, you know you end up with better valuation. History tells you you buy at certain levels. You know when we were down to over twenty percent, you start to buy. and You're down thirty percent, you start to buy. Um, we were caught off. We didn't think that the rally would be nearly as as sharp, as fast, uh, as almost you know violent, and leaving investors that were and en- hesitant at all just in its wake. Yeah.
2: Um, it didn't. They didn't give you a chance to buy if you didn't buy early.
0: Exactly, exactly. And those that thought and and us along the same line saying, well, you know, this could be a bear market rally. No, it wasn't. It was just a rally that just continued on. So with that in mind and with evaluation where it is, and I completely agree uh, in terms of don't fight the Fed. And we've seen that. I mean, the Fed has instituted basically a monetary inflation policy that that seems that it's going to go on for years. And going to support higher levels of asset prices, not just stocks, but gold in particular is is another one. So where do we go? Now, let me set the stage for you, Jimmy, because we've done some work here on this where you see a bear market, you see a, a rally like we've had. Usually it goes on longer than what we've seen, but you do get this rally that goes anywhere between 40 and 60 percent like we've seen. And then you hit this exhaustion phase of the market. And that's where the, uh, the market kind of trades sideways into the earnings recovery. And you get, you know, the PEs of the market coming back down. Um, you still have gains, but they're not as great as what we saw. Do you think that we're headed for that? Or what does the future hold in terms of stock market returns over the course of the next, say, year to two years, given what we've just come through?
2: So I, I agree with your characterization in terms of you know what you do get is you get these surges that 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 propel the market significantly higher over reasonably short periods of time. Um, so you get that big swing in valuations where it got where where the valuations start to get a little bit you know a little bit more stretched, but then you get that that earnings earnings pickup. Um, so I would certainly say that if we if we're up 60 percent plus in the last in the last four or five months. Um, it would be perfectly reasonable to expect that that a pause would would be warranted here. And as that pause occurs, you're going to start to see improving fundamentals on on the earnings side. But, you know, when you look out, if you you say, you know, what do you see over the next couple of years? Then you're sort of inching into into our world of strategic asset allocation, right? So if you're you're going out there, what, what we're looking at, is really what the expected returns for a num- uh, all these asset classes are when we think about how we construct portfolios. And you know, as you know, the, the, the framework, the cornerstone of our portfolio construction process is one at which we look at, you know, the expected returns for, for a wide variety of asset classes over that five year time horizon. Why do we use the five years? Well, very simply, you know, when you're building a strategic asset allocation portfolio, five years is a pretty reasonable time horizon. You know, as you know, the market can get expensive, it can stay expensive, it can get cheap and stay cheap. But our research has shown that over that five year time horizon, you you will tend to see a, a, a mean reversion um, of, of valuations. So an equity market that's cheap will start to 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 go back to its longer term averages. So you'll get a bit of a a tailwind in a market that's expensive um, will have the opposite effect, where it will be able to have a little bit of a valuation drag, um, and in that and that's a headwind. So when we look out, sort of over that two, three, four, five years, I prefer the five years because that's that's the most relevant to our the way we construct our portfolios. You know, we continue to see an economy that's going to recover slowly. Um, you know, we're not going back. We've had this big, big downdraft. We've had a big bounce back. Um, not surprising, given where where we were. Um, so we would expect to continue to see that moderate that moderate one and a half to two and a half percent GDP growth. You know, a little bit of inflation tacked onto that, um, and that ends up getting you with with expected returns on, on the equity side that are going to be around that you know four or fives and sixes for for most of the markets. Um, with the U.S. probably standing out as one of the less attractive of those of those markets. Um, and Canada having more attractive valuation and dividends, and, and EM being uh, having better growth dynamics. Um, so we we will continue to look out and expect to see you know some some modest gains on the on the equity side, um, and then on the fixed income side, you know again a very challenging space, um, which is so far as as with ten-year notes in the U.S. at 70 basis points or somewhere in that vicinity what you see is what you're going to get. That's probably what you can expect. So we're really interested in trying to find fixed income asset classes that are going to give us more of the historical type returns of fours and fives. And and we find that in in emerging market um, and high yield. Uh, And then we're constantly on the lookout from a portfolio construction standpoint for an asset class that might be it has interesting other diversification benefits or or absolute return potential. And that is where we focus our opportunistic sleeve and a good example of that would be you know in, in gold and, and, and some of the specific sectors like technology and we'll just continue to, to, to find regions and, and sectors that, that have uh, interesting growth dynamics. So when I think out to that sort of you know two years plus um, you know I would expect to see continue to see these portfolios be able to generate um, you know returns that, that um, will 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 be attractive from a longer term perspective.
0: Alex, uh, from your perspective, we've got an election coming up. Does that enter into your decision making or or how do you factor the potential outcomes of the elections in terms of portfolio positioning over the shorter term?
1: Yeah, absolutely. So event risk is always uh, a difficult factor to deal with. Um, if you look back at 2016, I think that was a, the, a pretty interesting uh, period of time where where we had some pretty big uh, learnings coming out of it. The, the first one was uh, there was the Brexit referendum in the UK um, that came out drastically different than than what were the expectations. But as well, you also had the 2016 uh, elections where Hillary Clinton was widely believed to uh, to be in the lead. Um, and of course, uh, that was not the outcome, but per- perhaps even more surprising uh, coming out of that was the market's reaction to, to those elections, which was quite literally the opposite of, of what most people had expected. Stocks did exceptionally well um, under that in- administration. Um, so from our perspective, you know, we don't tend to uh, base our positioning on our expectations of any specific event. What we'll typically do is Ah, uh, we'll wait for uh, the outcome to play out, and then we'll analyze uh, after the event to see, you know, whether that changes our our baseline assumptions or not. One of
2: the okay. things I I would want to add is that, you know, we're asked this question all the time, like you know, how how do you position in front of an election? How do you do that? And and one of the things that I always want to to reiterate is that, you know, we stick to our process, and you know, politics are everywhere, politics are nowhere. You know, and I I generally view that that politics are one thing, but policy is is the most important thing. But as we head up into this election, you know, we will stick to what we refer to as our four pillar approach, which we will look at, at the global macroeconomic environment, what the fundamentals are, what the sentiment is, what the trend is. And I would say that if, you know, if the equity market is up 20% between now and the day before election day, you can expect that we would be more inclined to reduce equities into that than, than add equities to that. So our, we don't specifically, you know, try to do you know, guess the, the outcome of elections, but we allow our four pillar approach to guide us um, throughout, that, throughout that period and, and respond to, to the, the, the opportunities and, and risks that are, that are being presented in the market at any given time.
0: So on that, you know, the drivers of this rally, I would argue, have been quite different from what is traditional, meaning earnings and valuation. If you're trying to buy this market based on earnings, forget it, right? Over the next couple of quarters, we're going to continue to see earnings decline. And then the earnings recovery, while we're starting to see signs of the potential for recovery into 2021, there's a lot of questions around that valuation if you're trying to base you know your decision on valuation well that was that was the right thing to do back in March maybe early April but then if you look at valuation today you forget about it right it's really hard to justify valuation today even with low interest rates and low inflation so it, it makes it challenging as an asset allocator I would say so when you when you think about that if we stay in this environment for a while, I and mean, we could be at the point where valuation continues to get stretched, earnings growth doesn't show up. What do you do in that in that environment? I mean, what what do you turn to?
2: Valuations have have been extraordinarily tricky, and uh, as you say, it's really all been about the fact that we just don't have any any real earnings clarity to 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 rely upon. I mean, some strategists will tell you that it'll be you know the end of next year that we'll get back to peak earnings. And, I, I don't know that, that that's the case. I just don't, I just do not have that um, that clarity at this point. But you have to remember that, you know, this was, this was a different recession than what we've seen in the past. Um, this was a mandated shutdown in the economy, whether it was government mandated or basically, you know, uh, individual uh, participants, you know, shutting down the economy. And that was met with basically a, a level of stimulus that matched the decline in, in, in GDP. Um, so where are we now sort of six months into it or, or eight months into it? Well, we're in a situation where, you know, it, it is inc- I don't think we can underestimate how supportive the monetary situation is and low interest rates are for, for risk assets. Um, and as we continue to look out the, the the spectrum, uh, you know, there are still um, you know, still can expect to see a, a slow recovery in the economy. We can continue to see a slow recovery in the um, uh, in earnings, and I think within that context, th- that risk assets will continue to be an attractive place to be. The Fed has got our back, um, and and we have just in a in a very supportive environment for 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 risk assets. So, yes, there'll be some backing and filling. Yes, we'll have some disappointments along the way, um, but this has been very much of a one-off type of situation. Um, you know, it's too early to say what a post-COVID world would look like, um, but I would say from an investment standpoint um, that we're going to continue to see see earnings growth and and and, and a, a somewhat robust rec- economy and, and very supportive interest rates. So um, I think that on an ongoing basis, um, we'll continue to see uh, an attractive environment for long-term investing. Alex, your thoughts?
1: I would add, you know, one of the reasons that uh, we don't just use... Um, fundamentals and valuations as part of our investment processes. We know those those two factors don't work all the time. If they did, those would be the only factors we would look at uh, from an investment process. But we also consider things like sentiment and technicals. And those two factors have been far more resilient uh, than what the fundamentals and valuation would, would probably warrant. Um, so I think it's it's, it's, it, it speaks to the importance of having a well-rounded process that recognizes that not all the factors that you're looking at are gonna be necessarily uh, predictive or, or working at any given time.
0: Okay, now, it's not just stocks and bonds that you guys can invest in. You can invest in a number of different asset classes and one that's come up a lot in conversation over the last couple of months and makes sense when you look at what the Fed has done. It's gold. As stocks have rallied, gold has rallied as well. And I would argue that the, the rally between those two asset classes is, is very, very similar. It's monetary inflation. If the Fed is going to increase the money supply to the extent that they have, then real assets retain their wealth. So, Where do you stand with gold?
2: I think gold is an extraordinarily interesting asset class. And we have had exposure in in precious metals and gold um, and have had for for quite some time. Um, And when we did our initial sort of research into gold, one of the things that surprised me was that over extraordinarily long periods of time, say, you know, 20 and 30 years, gold actually has returns that are very similar to, fixed income, and to anti-equities. But the thing about the the performance of gold is that performance is very episodic. And when I say that, I mean that, that it goes through periods of time when there is a tremendous amount of interest in gold. Gold has very strong momentum. There's a story around it. And then you can go through periods of time over which it's largely an ignored asset class. And between basically 2013 and 2019, that is exactly what we saw in gold. Gold at a wide trading range, but after all was said and done over that five-year period, the price of gold was pretty much unchanged. But what was going on underneath the hood was that gold was getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. So it was getting cheaper relative to equities. So in 2011, one ounce of gold would basically buy you two two units of the S&P. By the middle of last year, that one one ounce of gold would buy you half of the unit of the S&P. So by relative to the S&P, it actually dropped by about 70 to 75%. So it was getting cheaper relative to equities. It was also getting cheaper relative to money supply because over that five-year time horizon, you know, money supply was continuing to, to grow two or three or 4% a year. So again, gold just sat there and did nothing and was getting cheaper and cheaper relative to monetary aggregates it was also getting cheaper relative to interest rates. So if you think of that period between 2013 and 19, you know, the suppression of interest rates continued, interest rates continued to fall <laughs> to the extent that, you know, in the middle of last year, you know, 30% of global fixed income securities were trading at a negative yield. And one of the big knocks about it, about gold historically has been, was it doesn't pay any carry. And when you got, almost a third of, of fixed income in that same boat, actually giving you negative yields, all of a sudden gold got got started to, to, to react to that. And really what we, we had been, it had been on our radar screen, and, and it's certainly from a perspective of our four pillars, you know, sentiment, nobody cared about it. It was getting cheaper and cheaper and cheaper. The overall, you know, global macro environment was starting to look more and more attractive to gold because coming out of 2013, you know, people would have thought that with, with the amount of accommodation on the part of central banks, that gold should have been better, but it didn't. Um, and, you know, so so all that was lacking for us was really that uh, that emergence of a little bit of price momentum. Um, and when we started to see that price momentum, that's when we started to establish that position. And since we purchased it, it it's been basically the best um, asset class. It's been the highest performing asset class you know, since we bought it. Um, This year it's up basically 30%. It's the the best performing asset class this year. So it's been a very interesting asset class from an absolute return perspective, but it's been equally so from a diversification perspective, which was, you know, as an asset allocator, when you go through a period of time, such as March of last year, you know, we market was down basically, you know, 2% a day almost for 20 days in a row or over a 20 day period. But you would have days when the market was down two or three or four percent in a day. And you look at your portfolio and you see gold's unchanged or it's higher, you know, it continued to provide tremendous diversification benefits during that period of time. So you can see that diversification in real time having an impact on the portfolio. So we held on to that position all the way through that period of time. And coming out of that position, what would basically happen was that the market realized that all of the all of the attempts on part of central banks to be extraordinarily accommodative was de facto a little bit of, of attempt to devalue their currency when you've got global global trade is declining or is unchanged you know when that that the size of the pie is not getting bigger you know central banks are are, are very incentivized to try to, to do whatever they can to make their economies more more competitive and they do that by by attempting to devalue their currency um, so all of these things, you know, pointed very deeply to the fact that gold was going to be a, a very popular asset class. And lo and behold, what happened was when the market realized gold was had a very dynamic price move higher, it became the flavor of the month It became extraordinarily overbought. Uh, and consistent with our four pillar approach, um, we reduced our gold exposure. So we brought it back down to uh, sort of down by about 30 to 40 percent. And we're happy to feed that 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 bit of euphoria that was going on in the gold market. Since then, it's basically had a little bit of a time correction. We've had some some bad days, but really, it's only backed and filled by about five to six or seven percent, something of that magnitude. Um, and and we would think that the the ongoing outlook um, for gold, it's still very attractive relative to, to um, the S and P. Uh, it will continue to do well during periods of, of market turbulence or macroeconomic or geopolitical issues. So the, the, the backdrop is still very much in line with gold. It's simply a case that it got a little bit of ahead of itself, and um, and when it gets a little bit ahead of itself, we're gonna we will be reducers in that environment. Um, but certainly, our outlook for gold is, is still very constructive.
0: as we're looking out over the next 12 months in positioning, where where are some of your key overweights and underweights? Well, let's through that, both under overweights and underweights over the course of the next 12 months.
2: I feel over the next 12 months, you know, at this point, we have portfolios that are in extremely good shape. And really what that means to me is that we have as many sources of additional return as possible. So, for instance, you know our active managers have continued to perform very well in here, um, and I would expect that our, that those active managers would continue with that that ability to generate alpha. Um, you know, in these per- portfolios, uh, the addition of uh, of a strategic beta uh, exposure through our dimensional fund advisor DTF um, is another area where I think that that uh, um, we'll be able to boost returns in the future, um, and I think also. Uh, our ability to navigate using our strategic asset allocation process, um, our our ability to navigate through these markets is also another potential source of of, of alpha from an asset allocation perspective. Um, and then, you know, the the fourth the fourth source of alpha is that opportunistic sleeve, which gives us the ability to be much more responsive to risks as they present themselves in the market. Um, as well as, ret- as, as re- something that, that's got particularly interesting return potential, so that gives us the, that that ability to be more responsive. Um, so, from a positioning standpoint, given what the type of rally that we've seen, we're we're pretty much neutral equity risk at this point. Um, we certainly, you know, like our emerging market exposures, our foreign exposures, um, but we're, we're 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 sort of more in that neutral category. Um, we also, on the fixed income side, have been a little bit more interested in, in getting additional yield into the portfolio. So, so our exposures to our active managers to high yield, um, as well as in the opportunistic sleeve to emerging market bonds, uh, another area where I think is, 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 a, is an attractive place to be. Uh, and then finally, our, our, our gold holdings um, in that opportunistic sleeve, uh, again, will be a great diversifier, will be a great lever to be able to pull um, should we, we we feel that that if there's an opportunity there to um, to be positioned uh, more more um, uh, more forcefully in in that particular position? So, um, you know, I think that the portfolios are are exactly where I would want them to be. They're well diversified. They've got lots of potential to to, to generate um, attractive returns for our clients, um, and we'll just continue to apply that process to make sure that we we, we stay the course. Um, and keep rebalancing these portfolios um, as appropriate.
0: We' are in September. We're heading into a weaker period for stocks. Uh, we've got the election coming up. Um, yeah, do you think that there's a higher probability of a correction? We're going out there we're saying we think there is. but wh- where do you stand on that?
1: so for the for the most part, our uh, equity positioning is is a little bit closer to neutral. We also have, as Jamie pointed out, some asset classes that should help uh, in the event that we have uh, some sort of dislocation or or pickup in uh, in uh, risk averseness, um, such as gold. Uh, so that should help us a little bit. But with that said, you know, there's a lot priced into US equities uh, today. So it'll be interesting to see uh, how, how things play out. You, you never know, you could get a, a possible upside with the early release of a vaccine, depending on how the, the trial data comes out.
0: Okay, gentlemen, this has been great. I want to go through a quick lightning round in terms of expectations, say, over the next, uh, yeah, let's do 12 months. um, And I'm going to set it up and ask each of you in terms of your view. So first one, we've seen the Canadian dollar rally against the United States uh, in in U.S. dollar terms. We're just shy of about 76 and a half cents today. Uh, Over the course of the next 12 months, I'm going to say 79 cents, higher or lower? Alex?
1: when we look at most of our models they, they tend the, the cat tends to be around fair value around current levels so maybe a tinge smaller but not much
0: jamie i'm assuming since it's the models you you would agree with that
1: <laughs>
2: yeah no i i, I was uh, i was afraid you're gonna ask about the king dollar because you know this whole concept of fair value is is uh, is something that markets generally go to fair value and don't stay there very long but i would but i would be of that same view i think that the that the Canadian dollar will be um, largely unchanged uh, for the foreseeable future. All
0: right. We're going to come back to this, but I'm going to say uh, we'll come back to this in future episodes. I'm going to say higher. It's uh, 12 months from now. It's going to be okay. you know 79 cents or, or certainly higher than where and we are. The Canadian are.
2: dollar will be stronger.
0: Stronger. Yes. Right. Stronger to the U.S. Yeah. Um, I've got gold. Our fair value for gold says 2250. So in the next six months, uh, you know, over that or under that?
2: i'm going to say over the next six months given what what type of of turbulence we might see i think that will probably be over that um that would be my sense
0: all right um and then uh s p 500 let's let's give this um yeah 12 months from here so september 1st 2020 i'm going to give you a level you tell me higher or lower so next 12 months uh, I want to make it also somewhat realistic here. So we're at 35 and change today. Okay, I'm going to say 38.50, which is just yeah, I think a little bit shy of 10%. So 38 higher. Yeah, it's about 10% higher. But so 38.50 in 12 months' time, uh, Jamie, higher or lower than that?
2: I am going to rely on our strategic asset allocation forecast for for um, for U.S. equities and say it's going to be. Positive, but not as
0: high as thirty eight fifty. Yeah, Alex, you uh, you agree? You're going to take a, a slightly different view.
1: I'll, I'll take I'll take the under. I, I think we're trading at pre COVID peak valuations on earnings that don't exist. So I'll I'll take the under. All
0: right, um, and uh, let's just for fun here too. Tesla, twelve months from now, new high or or uh, much lower.
2: I I'm, I'm going to give that to Alex cuz cuz I think this is part of a, a, a more of a speculative world that he he focuses on a little bit. That yeah.
1: is
0: absolutely it's, speculative.
1: It's it's a good example of irrational exuberance especially in in that stock. Maybe I'm wrong, but I read a I read a quote the other day that said Tesla could correct by 95% and it would still be more expensive than Toyota on a price to sales basis. With that said, you never short a bubble. So who knows how high it can go. Um, but it's hard if you look at traditional valuation metrics to justify the current levels for that stock.
0: Well, it's hard to justify it if you assume that Tesla will be the only car manufacturer in a year's time. <laughs> you know, I mean, Even if they sold every single car in the world, it's still the valuation still doesn't make sense. That aside. OK, um, what has this what has the work-from-home situation allowed you to do that before you weren't, Alex?
1: I've been spending significantly more time with with my family in the evening. I go for a long walk with uh, with my siblings who uh, live nearby. My my brother has been giving me a crash course on uh, commercial insurance, so that's been uh, it's been interesting and it's been great to catch up with my single siblings on a more regular basis. And Jamie, over to you. Wow,
2: what have I uh, been allowed me to do? Well, it's allowed me to work longer hours, um, which is uh, fantastic, uh, exercise less um, and, uh, and gain some weight. So that's, uh, that's what it's allowed me to do over the last six months.
0: You know, it's aside from the working longer hours, which I agree, you know, when you don't have to commute, you can start earlier and you get, you know, when you don't have to commute home, you can sit there and just drag it on. But I've actually been able to to work out a lot more and consistently more than I did before, too, which is, you know, which has been a a nice surprise. All right. Last question. Your last dollar. Where does it go, Jamie?
2: My first dollar or my last dollar? Not
0: your last dollar. (laughs) If you're going to put your last dollar into the market somewhere where does it go oh boy i I'm,
2: I'm i just buy a little bit i buy a little tiny
1: piece of gold
0: little tiny piece of, and alex you have the last word on this
1: exact same place I, I don't get a sense that the printing presses whether it's fiscal or monetary are stopping anytime soon
0: all right and i would agree entirely with that one i think that um you know the monetary inflation you know one thing that that we didn't touch on and maybe we'll save this for another episode but it's the whole concept of modern monetary theory, which, you know, if you actually look at it, doesn't seem modern at all. You know, this has been tried in the past. Um, but if we are headed down that route where we're going to continue to see uh, central banks you know, pump up the money supply in their respective countries, then real assets are going to continue to move up in value. And, and gold is certainly one of those. So gentlemen, I want to thank you very much again for your insights. This has been a, a another great conversation with you in terms of you know, where we've come through this uh, this uh, pandemic, recession, bear market and rally and what we can expect going forward. And and what I love most is the consistency of your approach. With that, I want to thank you, Alex, uh, for joining us as well as Jamie for joining us on Investments Unplugged. Thanks for
2: having Thanks us. so much. Thanks for having us.
0: I love sitting down with Alex and Jamie. My favorite conversations are those that can start big picture and then bring it down to portfolio positioning. And I would suggest that this conversation was good from that perspective and showed that asset allocation is a moving target. The 60-40 portfolio isn't dead, it's just misunderstood. It doesn't stay static, but rather moves with the current. If you listen to the podcast, please take a moment to rate us. It will help other like-minded individuals find us. This has been Philip Peterson. Thank you for listening. Copyright Manulife. Commentary is for general information purposes only and shouldn't be relied on for specific financial, legal, or other advice and does not constitute an offer or an invitation by or on behalf of Manulife Investment Management to any person to buy or sell any security. Opinions expressed are those of Manulife and or the sub-advisor of Manulife Investment Management, and are subject to change based on market and other conditions. Manulife isn't responsible for any losses arising from any use of this information. Manulife funds are managed by Manulife Investment Management Limited, formerly named Manulife Asset Management Limited. Manulife Investment Management is a trade name of Manulife Investment Management Limited. Commissions, trailing commissions, management fees, and expenses all may be associated with mutual fund investments. Please read the fun facts and perspectives before investing. Mutual funds are not guaranteed, their values change frequently, and past performance may not be repeated. This information does not replace or supersede know your client suitability, needs analysis, or any other regulatory requirements.